Good morning. Well, we're going to turn our attention this morning to our continued study in the Gospel of Matthew. If you haven't already turned there to chapter 13, as we pick back up in the middle of this really transition in Jesus' preaching ministry uh, to one that is predominantly, at least to the crowds, predominantly comprised of parables. You know, as I think about things in life that tempt me to sin, there's really too many to name, but one of the most frustrating and disappointing things in life, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is unmet expectations. Whether it's the food at the restaurant that rarely looks as good as it was advertised, or maybe it was the hotel you were going to stay at that doesn't look quite as nice as the photos, sometimes not at all like the photos. The vacation wasn't everything you had hoped it would be. Maybe the storm blew in. The beach wasn't as white and sandy as you expected. Expectations have a way of warping our worldview, of stealing our joy, our excitement, and really even leading us, tempting us to greater sin. We can become unhappy, unenjoyable people when our expectations are not met. And while unmet expectations can arise when someone presents an exaggerated or misleading picture of something, probably just as often, if not more often, we have a propensity to manufacture expectations in our own mind that were never supposed to be there to begin with. One of the most important pieces of advice I received before marriage was to not enter it with expectations. Not just don't manage your expectations, but don't enter marriage with expectations. Do everything you can to eliminate them. Instead, go into marriage preparing to serve and to love another person, knowing that they are at times going to sin and hurt me, although in our marriage it may be me that does it more the other way. And this may not sound like the most romantic premarital advice, but it has served to safeguard our marriage in so many ways. And that's not to say that our marriage is perfect, far from it. I've failed many times at this. I've caught myself sinning by creating those expectations instead of selflessly loving. But it has served as a safeguard. It is a protection. I can only imagine where our marriage may have been if we had entered it with any other thought, if we had come into it with all these expectations of what I should get out of this. Well, this morning's message isn't one on marriage. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day were not immune to unmet expectations. Perhaps the greatest expectations the Jews had was of the coming Messiah and the coming kingdom. Now, by itself, there is absolutely nothing wrong with an expectation of the Messiah and an expectation of the coming kingdom. It had been prophesied, it had been told to them this was coming. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problem was that the Jews of Jesus' day had developed expectations about what this Messiah would look like, what this kingdom would look like, and how it was going to come about, when it would come about, in thing, things and in ways that were never promised or prophesied. They had manufactured expectations in these Manufactured expectations, as we will see, became a source of sin and a stumbling block for these Jews. Even the disciples themselves had to continually rid themselves of these expectations. All the way up until 
the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. This morning we're going to look at three parables of Jesus that Matthew relates and tells to us in order to help guide us into correct thinking and expectations concerning the kingdom of God. So read along with me if you would, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and they went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it grow tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Pray with me as we turn our attention to the study of these parables this morning. Father, we do once again lift up our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Father, we pray for their safety. We pray for the ministry that is going on there. Lord, strengthen them, encourage them. Father, we pray that your word would sound forth in the midst of all that is going on as, as the walls of many of these churches are destroyed and they have holes in them. May the singing that goes on sound forth out of those churches, drawing in those in the community, encouraging them, exhorting them, allowing them to hear your word. Lord, as we direct our time and attention this morning, would you help to settle our hearts and our minds? Would we come eager to receive your word, to search these things eagerly, to see if they are so? That we would be quick to apply, that you would give us ears to hear. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Verses 24 through 35 contain this series of three parables. You may notice that Matthew waits, if you read ahead a little bit and cheated, and waits all the way until verse 36 and follows the presenting of the three parables with Jesus' explanation of that first parable. He doesn't interrupt the flow, and there's a reason for this. He's grouping them together, and that's because they share a common theme and highlights a common purpose. They function in a way somewhat similar to stair-step parallelism. 
They are united in their theme, the kingdom of God, and each one provides further insight into the kingdom of God, specifically with regard to its unfolding. And as we see in verses 34 through 35, these three parables are related to the unfolding of the mystery of salvation, which God has built into the fabric of creation from the beginning of time. It's like those Easter eggs that you try to find in movies or in architecture or in paintings. Jesus, as he presents parables, we've talked about have two purposes, both to reveal and to conceal. To the believer, to the follower of Christ, that revelation is like wiping the fog off the mirror after a hot shower, and you can see clearly what was before, types and shadows, as the writer of Hebrews says. Jews were used to waiting for the appearing of the kingdom. No Jew doubted the glory of the future kingdom. What they struggled to comprehend, what they struggled to understand, was that it could come in such a humble form as the man, Jesus Christ. This did not fit their expectation of the Messiah. And as we've seen, beginning in chapter 10 and 11, now even their expectation of the kingdom is being thrown off. Because Jesus isn't talking about this great kingdom to being established. He's talking about suffering. And that doesn't fit their expectation. This was an incongruity in the Jewish mind. Their expectation was that the next step in God's kingdom program was to wipe Rome from Israel and the earth and establish the kingdom of Israel in all her glory and for the true Davidic king to reign and shepherd his people and rule over all the world. And yet Jesus' ministry and teaching was saying that, yes, the kingdom of God has drawn near, but suffering and persecution was first headed their way. That there would be a time where the kingdom of God would increase through, through the growth of its citizens, but that the worldwide reign and rulership of this kingdom was not yet here. So it's against this backdrop and the growing realization amongst the crowds that their expectations of the kingdom were unmet that Jesus begins to teach largely through parables. Verses 24 through 30 introduce for us another sower parable. We looked at one last week. And as we've noted concerning the teaching of the kingdom of heaven or of God, that's what these parables focus on. Now, uh, one of the things to pay attention to is when, a, when someone says, when a rabbi would say, when Jesus says that such a, you know, the, introduces a parable and says, it is like this, what they are drawing attention to is the entire situation. And so they're saying that in these three examples, it is like the kingdom of heaven, that is, is like the situation of this man who sowed. It is like the situation of a mustard seed which is planted and grows. It is like the situation of this woman who puts this leaven into the three pecks of flour. It is not just the leaven, it is not just the mustard seed, it is not just the seed, it is the situation. So what is the situation of the man who sowed this first parable? Well, the first half of the parable explains the situation, while the second half shows the sower's, the master's, response to the situation. In verses 24 through 28, we see a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his servants, and presumably he, was sleeping, enemies sowed tares. 
Now, the sleeping of the servants here does not indicate slothfulness. It does not indicate sinfulness. It's simply pointing to the cunning and deceitfulness of the enemy who snuck in under the cover of darkness to try and destroy the work of the sower. The tares that the enemy uses would have been well known to those Israelites who were listening that day. It was a type of weed called bearded darnel. It's related to the wheat family. In fact, it's even called false wheat because it looks so similar. It wasn't until the wheat ears began to appear that you could really tell them apart. But even then, for an untrained eye like mine, I would still struggle and probably get it wrong in trying to differentiate. As it grows, it intertwines its larger and stronger roots with wheat, making it difficult to separate and remove. Now, it's not just a nuisance. Bearded Darnell is actually a poisonous plant. In smaller doses, it makes a person dizzy. In fact, its Latin name is derived from the word drunk. It begins messing with vision and speech, and in larger doses, it can even kill a person. Apparently, feuding villages used to plant this bearded Darnell in one another's fields to make each other sick and harvesting more difficult. It became enough of a problem that the Romans incorporated into their laws prohibitions against planting bearded Darnell. Well, in the second half of verse 28, we begin to see the response to this situation. In the parable, the servants come to their master inquiring about the tares that are now evident. And the master immediately recognizes and points out that it is an enemy who has done this. The zeal of the servants is then manifest as they ask if they should remove it. The problem is that its roots would at this time be entangled with the wheats, and the removal of the darnel would potentially uproot and destroy some, if not most, of the wheat itself. So the master tells the servants to allow them both to grow together until the time of the harvest. The servants are expressly forbidden from trying to change things now because to do so would be premature and would upend the plan and the purpose of the master. The master is emphatic that the situation must not be changed until the later harvest. And it will be at that time that the master will have his harvester separate out and burn the poisonous tares. Now, we're going to save most of our interpretation of this parable until next week, where we have Jesus' explicit description, his explanation, much more detail provided. But there's at least one, if not two, important implications we want to make note of this morning as we see the continuity of these three parables. First, and most importantly, to the, to the overall context of these three parables, we notice the need for patience as the wheat grows until the harvest. And note back too, it was the planting of the seed is what is likened to the kingdom. So the kingdom has entered and now there's patience while we wait for the kingdom to be fully manifest. Though there is evil in the world, the two are allowed to grow together. Patience is not only required on the part of the servants to patiently wait while they're surrounded by those who are poisonous tares. But notice the great patience of the sower. He patiently waits, allowing a poisonous and destructive weed to exist alongside what he has carefully planted 
until the time of the harvest. I can't help but call to mind the patience of God that some interpret and misunderstand as forgetfulness. But it's the patience of God, the forbearance of God, wishing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Our emphasis this morning, looking at all three of these parables, is on the timing, though. There will be a time of waiting before the kingdom is established, fully established, and evil is removed. Until that time, there will be false teachers and pretenders. There will be lookalikes. Those who fit the description of Matthew 7, 21-23, where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew transitions quickly from one parable to the next as he highlights the united theme of these three parables concerning the kingdom. And you begin to see they're all related with this concept of time that must take place. Next he moves into the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed was the smallest of the common garden or agricultural seeds. It's the smallest of those seeds that they would have used for planting and harvesting. In fact, it was so small it had become something of a rabbinic proverb to describe the smallness of something by comparing it to a mustard seed. Jesus' comment, smaller than all seeds, then is taken in the context of first century Israel's agrarian community. He's not comparing it to every possible seed on the face of the earth. And this was, in fact, the smallest of the seeds they would regularly use, just a speck in the palm of a hand. Mustard, it's interesting, it's at once a plant, a bush, and a tree. It has characteristics of all three. And while some varieties may remain smaller bushes, it can regularly grow up to 20 feet tall, sometimes taller and equally as wide, resembling a tree with copious amounts of branches. In addition, it produces thousands of small seeds which attract birds to its branches. This parable describes the smallness of the seed in comparison to its eventual size, which is going to invite the birds to nest in its branches while it feeds from its fruit. Now you may recognize, in fact, in your Bible, you may see italicized birds nesting in its branches. That's because oftentimes the, uh, the translators who put the Bible together, they italicize it when it references something that has previously been said. Usually in the Old Testament, you find it in the New Testament with the Old but sometimes an earlier New Testament saying, or in the Old Testament, an earlier Old Testament saying. And it's no different here. In the Old Testament, birds nesting in the branches was used to describe a great kingdom. We find it as a description of the Babylonian kingdom, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Daniel 4.12, where it describes Nebuchadnezzar as that great tree with all the birds nesting in his branches before he has to be humbled. We find it in Ezekiel 31.6 of the great Assyrian kingdom. Again, with uh, the birds nesting in its branches, seeming to imply nations coming to rest, as well as animals under its branches for shade. 
Importantly, we also find it in Ezekiel 17.23 describing the future kingdom of God through Israel that will be planted to replace the kingdom that has failed in its sin and its idolatry and its harlotry. The description of birds to the branches is not explained here. However, in the Old Testament, as we've noted, different contexts certainly seems to imply persons from all different nations. And whether that's the intended meaning of this parable or not, we know that the kingdom of God will include persons from every tribe, tongue, and nation, according to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. But what's primarily important, the main emphasis in addressing these unmet expectations is that we see in this parable, again, patience and time. Time that is required for the kingdom of God to grow. It is planted, and then we must wait for it to become this massive tree until the time when the birds then can come to rest. And so again, we see Jesus addressing the Jewish expectation of an immediate reign and rule on the earth, encountering that with the need to wait. Jesus came, but he did not come to instantaneously institute the kingdom of God, but to plant the seed so that the wheat would have time to grow, as we saw in the first parable, and so that the kingdom of God would have time to mature and grow to great size, primarily through its citizens. The kingdom of God appears small and unimpressive at first. Jesus' ministry, while miraculous and powerful in teaching, did not come with the overthrowing of governments that the Jewish people expected and longed for. This need for patience and adjusting expectations is highlighted in this parable. The kingdom of God is then not coming all at once. It has truly drawn near. It has dawned. The warmth of the sun is felt, but the full blaze of its glory is not yet realized. Matthew quickly moves into the third and final parable, even shorter than the previous two. And yet, despite its brevity, it would have left a profound impression in the ears of those who heard it for two primary reasons. You see, this parable opens with two unexpected characters. First, the main actor is a woman, not a man. Secondly, leaven is viewed positively, not negatively. Leaven was frequently, though not exclusively, used as a negative metaphor. Leaven itself, though, is not negative. It's used to highlight the growth and the pervasive nature of something, either positive or negative. And it's because of this characteristic, and it's because of the ubiquitous nature of sin, that we most frequently find it applied metaphorically in this way, where leaven is shown, or it uses the illustration of leaven and its, its growth and its permeation to show what sin is like. But leaven itself is not viewed as evil or bad. In fact, in Leviticus, leavened bread is required as part of the first fruit offerings. In Jewish tradition, women, they would take their leaven that they had cultivated and they would separate it out and at the marriage of their daughter would give it to their daughter so that she would have it for her household and would continue to use it throughout her life. So there's nothing inherently evil about leaven. Well, it was something else that is also unique, maybe not quite as much so as the first two characteristics, but also unique is the amount of baking this woman is doing. 
Now, three pecks may sound small, but that would have been nearly 50 pounds of flour. Elise enjoys making sourdough bread, and for a while she was making two loaves a day. And thankfully, we have Costco. And for a while, Costco carried 50-pound bags of bread flour. And when we would pick one up, we would expect it to last about three months or so. But here this woman is, using it all at once, taking what for us would have been almost three months' worth of bread or flour and baking it or leavening it all at once. This was an impressive baking operation. It was enough food to feed well over 100, 150 people. I can't help but wonder if there isn't here a nod to the coming wedding feast with the king and his kingdom. Luke notes in Luke 14, 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And in Revelation, John says in Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, regardless of whether or not this here is an allusion to the coming wedding feast in the kingdom, what we see is that like the mustard seed, which grew over time, so leaven takes its time to work before the bread is ready to be prepared. And it would have taken quite some time for the leaven to permeate the entirety of those three pecks, of those 50 pounds of flour. As one commentator noted, like yeast, the kingdom will continue to grow until it permeates the whole world. The parable of the yeast builds on one aspect of the mustard seed parable and that of growth. Another commentator summarizes, the Jews rightly understood that the arrival of the kingdom would mean the transformation of the order of things in this world. But Jesus' arrival did not bring the expected immediate external dramatic change. So his parable teaches the crowds, for those who have ears to hear, that they must not let the present inconspicuous form of the kingdom fool them from understanding what will be its final result. The parables of the mustard seed and yeast work together to reveal the nature of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' ministry. The mustard seed emphasizes an inconspicuous beginning, the smallness of its start, with its growth into external greatness. Well, the yeast suggests its inconspicuous permeation and transformation. Well, Matthew has a final word of clarification and explanation regarding these parables. Matthew summarizes these three parables concerning the kingdom by pointing us to Psalm 78. You can go and turn there if you'd like. At the heading to Psalm 78, you'll find a reference to Asaph, the author. By the way, that is part of the original text, where some of the psalm headings are inserted by your translators. Here, this reference, where it says a maskeel of Asaph, is part of the inspired word of God that has been preserved for us. Matthew quotes this, the beginning of Asaph's psalm when he says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Asaph served during the reign of King David and was called both a prophet and a seer. Matthew states that Jesus did not speak to the crowds that day in anything other than parables. 
And according to Matthew, this speaking in parables and this explanation here was to fulfill the words of Asaph. Now, how does he do that? In what way is he fulfilling it? Unfortunately, many critical scholars have struggled with this inclusion by Matthew and have determined that Matthew misunderstood and abused the context of Psalm 78. And he's ripped it from its context. None of its original meaning can connect to what Matthew is here saying. However, I would counter that such a conclusion reveals the limitation of the interpreter, not a problem with Matthew, the author. You see, what many critical scholars have missed is the manner in which the Old Testament and New Testament authors would refer to a verse to draw attention to the entire context, to the entire train of theology. One of the other things I think they miss is that Matthew here is giving us understanding and interpretation of these parables. So in what sense is Jesus fulfilling the words of Asaph in Psalm 78? Well, first, recall that that term fulfill, when applied to Scripture and later scriptural authors, most often refers to describing the greatest expression of that passage. It's really the idea of he has made full. He's, he's, he has done this in an even better way. In a, a different way, he's done an even better job of filling this up. He's not ignoring that it was maybe fulfilled at another time or done in another way, but this is the greatest expression of this. With that in mind, notice the close connection between the thematic content of Psalm 78 and these parables of Jesus. Now we won't read it in its entirety, it's a long psalm, but if you've been scanning it instead of listening to me, you'll notice that it relates to God's plan for Israel. Specifically, it looks back at the history of God's plan for Israel and begins walking the hearer through what God has done, beginning with his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, looking at the constituting of the nation at the Exodus, looking at the disobedience, the turning, the patience of God, warring against enemies, God saving them, delivering them, punishing them, all the way up to the time of the first David. You see, he's relating God's plan for Israel and how it unfolded and how unique it was. It took so many twists and turns. If you had asked Abraham, what is it going to look like, I don't think he would have described it the way it unfolded. And so Asaph relates this mystery, this manner in which God has unfolded, as he begins fulfilling his promises to Abraham. The unexpected route it took with the exodus, with Israel's disobedience, her enemies, etc., culminating with David as king down in verse 70 of Psalm 78. Now, what is significant about Asaph's conclusion? It's this, that Asaph's appeal to David is an appeal to the Davidic covenant and all the promises to David. It's all the promises that would one day be fulfilled in the line of David. The Davidic covenant and the promises that Asaph is looking at. 
And so he looks at the present history as an affirmation and confirmation that God is going to fulfill the promises he made to David, even if he unfolds it in an unexpected manner. In fact, Asaph might have added, if history is any indication, expect the unexpected in the unfolding of the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant which ushers in the reign of God. Asaph's use use of shepherding Israel is also significant at the end of Psalm 78 because Asaph refers to God as the ultimate shepherd over in Psalm 80. Just glance over there, right at the beginning. And from the ending of Psalm 78, with the picking up of transferring the shepherd of Israel to God himself, who we know is Christ Jesus, the great shepherd, as John introduces him. In between that is a trail of breadcrumbs, a scarlet thread leading from Psalm 78, really going back much further, but picking up where we are in Psalm 78, Through Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24, where we read, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the kingdom of God with Christ, the Messiah, reigning on David's throne. And it continues on. To Micah, chapter 7, and verse 14, which points to the rule and reign of Christ, where we read, Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland. In the midst of a fruitful field, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Here's the significance of what Matthew says in verses 34 through 35. Just as Asaph has demonstrated the unexpected fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in bringing forth a nation that would enter the land leading up to the first David, the path to the reign of the second David will be unexpected. The fulfillment of God's promise to David regarding this promised kingdom will go through an unexpected series of events, among which is this gap in time. Between the inauguration of the kingdom, of Jesus' arrival, the planting of the seed, of this small, insignificant mustard seed, and the culmination of that kingdom that we read about in Revelation and in Isaiah and in so many other places of Scripture. A small mustard seed and the picture of leaven are odd choices to describe a kingdom. But that is precisely the point. The kingdom of God looked odd at first. No one expected the kingdom of God to be introduced this way. Even the disciples struggled with this up to the resurrection and ascension. God has begun to act, to do kingly deeds, to reign, to show hints at this overturning of sin through healing and the healings he's been doing, overturning the curse through the raising people from the dead. The creation is his. He is reclaiming it. He is graciously and patiently, though, reigning now from heaven. And yet we know that he will reign one day in glorious power with a rod of iron on David's throne. So the reminder that we have to pause and utter this morning is this. If you 
do not know the Lord as your Savior, if you do not understand what it means to be saved from your sins, then I ask you to contemplate that this morning. To think and to recognize that your sin separates you from this holy God, this King who will reign. But you see, He's patient, He is gracious. He's allowing the tares and the wheat to grow simultaneously until the day of the harvest. So repent while it is still today. Turn from your sin. Call out to the Lord. There's none that he will turn away. In closing, I want to do two things. First, I want to summarize three lessons concerning the kingdom of God from these parables. And it's short. These are three points. You could certainly find other lessons concerning the kingdom. In fact, we will see other lessons as we look at the interpretation Jesus provides next week. As we continue looking at these kingdom parables and Jesus' teaching on the kingdom throughout the rest of Matthew. But these are three important reminders concerning the kingdom this morning. First, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness after an extended period of time. How long? We don't know but it will come. But there is this patience, this time of waiting. The kingdom of God will grow now, but it's going to grow in unexpected ways. Thirdly, the dawning of the kingdom of God that we've been reading about in Matthew demonstrates God's great patience and his mercy until the day Christ is reigning from David's throne, what we would call the mediatorial reign of Christ. Second thing I want us to do moves from more of our thinking to more of how we act. There's some important implications for us from the Jews' response to the kingdom and Matthew's reference to Asaph. And it's this. We must be careful not to follow the example of the Jews who had created their own expectation of what the kingdom would look like and were then disappointed when their expectations were not met. We must be careful not to create expectations of God that are not explicitly taught from Scripture. Whether concerning the kingdom, the Christian life, or our doctrine. You see, we're so often disappointed, not because God has failed us, but because we acted presumptuously. Certain that we knew what God's will was. You see, there are persons who promise blessings from God, that promise healings from God, that promise prosperity from God. They presume to speak for God, and they set expectations that are not found in Scripture. And then people are disappointed when those things don't come to pass. These false expectations create today stumbling blocks for people, just as the Jews had a stumbling block. And what does Christ say about those who create stumbling blocks? It's better that they had a millstone tied around their neck than that they would do this. So how do you avoid unmet expectations? Carefully study Scripture. Don't just read it. Yes, read it. Fill your mind with it. But learn how to study it, to interrogate it, to ask questions. That's why we have our Bible studies that meet. It's to learn to ask questions of the text, to stop, to ruminate, to meditate upon the text.
There's another even more specific implication that I wanted to bring up this morning that has to do with expectations, particularly with regard to the church. When we respond in shock and horror, when we see someone in the church sin, we belie an unbiblical expectation. Nowhere does scripture describe the church as a gathering of perfectly holy and sinless people. Quite the opposite. Every Christian is at the same time, as Luther says, righteous and a sinner. Now, that doesn't mean sin's okay. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be differences between the church and the world. Absolutely should. But it's a far cry to say that there's differences versus there's perfection. Nowhere does Scripture describe the church as that gathering of perfectly holy and sinless people. However, the greatest difference that should exist between the church, and this is the expectation Scripture provides, the expectation that Christ provides, the expectation that the apostles provide, is that the difference that should exist is one, in bearing fruit, secondly, in how Christians respond to sin. Again, tying into what we talked about this morning leading into our time of communion. You know, there's these 40 days of Lent where there's to be this time of repentance. As we were reminded, our whole life is to be a life of repentance. And that's what should mark the Christian out. So it should mark the church out, is how Christians respond to sin, both the ones sinning and those observing the sin. Christians should be quick to repent and quick to forgive. It's where there is a lack of repentance and mourning over sin where great danger exists for the church. Where sin is minimalized, where we have created an unexpressed list of acceptable sins, where we are more offended when these sins are exposed than in the fact that the sin itself exists in the first place. It's this type of environment that would invite the judgment of God. So as we consider these parables, as we recognize the need for them because of Israel's unmet expectations, the final exhortation to us this morning is to strive to match our expectations, have expectations, but match them to what Christ has revealed in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these parables and what you've so clearly taught to us through them. Help us to have patience. Help us to think rightly about your kingdom. Help us to be a part of growing your kingdom now through the preaching of the gospel, through being salt and light, a city set on a hill. Father, help create within us a sensitivity, a mourning over sin that would distinguish us, that would help us to stand out, not because we are perfect people, but because we model what repentance over sin and grieving and mourning over sin looks like. Let us come alongside. Let us encourage one another. Father, let us be proactive in seeking how we may serve one another and serve those around us and preach your gospel. I pray these things in your name. Amen.